Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Our God, we rejoice that you have brought us into your presence this evening. We come thanking you that we can praise in the presence of the heavenly host and all the saints who have gone before us the name of our Father who is in heaven. For that name is holy, holy, holy. For you are the Lord God Almighty. And we come rejoicing that we have access into your presence by the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. And so this evening we come with boldness and we come with confidence, not in ourselves, for we have nothing in our hands. We have nothing to offer you that would be found well-pleasing in your sight. But we come in the merit and in the mediatorship of our sinless great high priest, Jesus Christ. We come in such a way knowing that in coming boldly, that we can come knowing that we have a sympathetic high priest. And as our sympathetic high priest, we we come not in our shame, but we come clothed in his perfect righteousness. A righteousness that has been placed around our shoulders and over our entire selves, put there not by our merits or our works, but placed upon us, imputed to us by faith alone in Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. We do so in the power of the Spirit who who makes our prayers effectual. For the merit of our prayers are not in the prayers themselves or in anything in us, but in the spirit of holiness who brings those prayers through Christ to the Father that the triune God might be glorified in our prayers and in our praise. We thank you, Lord, that... You are the God who has spoken. You have spoken into all of existence, all things that now are. Nothing exists that did not exist because of your word. But your word spoke, and that which it spoke came to be. For in the beginning you were there. For you are the everlasting God. As the triune God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You have no beginning of days. You have no end of days. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change not, and therefore we are not consumed. But you made us, and you created us. And we thank you, O God, for that. And we bow our knee before you now as our sovereign Lord, our creator, but what is more, our Redeemer. For though you created us in a state of innocence, we did not remain there, but fell in Adam, in an act of treason and rebellion, of sinfulness. And we pray 
acknowledging unto you, O God, that in and of ourselves we deserve the wrath and curse of God. That we have only our sin to blame for what would be our eternal destination in hell forever. But you, O God, have delivered us. You have delivered your church, your people, from the clutches of hell and eternal death by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And for this we rejoice, and we give you everlasting praise. <clears throat> we would pray, Father, for this year congregation of your people, Heritage Church. We thank you for each of her members. We thank you for those who have been visiting and worshiping, but not yet members. And we pray for your grace to rest upon them all. Watch over, protect, guide, and lead the flock of God that is here among us. We pray for the elders and this church's deacon. We pray that you would bless them in their labors and in all their work. Give them grace and strength. Lift them up, O God, even when they grow tired or weary. May they be found faithful unto you and your word and care for the flock of God and shepherd them as under-shepherds of the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. We thank you for Pastor Miller and for the Miller family. And we would ask that you would be with them. Watch over them and protect them. Give them continued refreshment in the time that they have left on their vacation. We thank you that they were able to be together and that they were able to be refreshed and were able to even fellowship with the people of God up in Austin this morning. <clears throat> Father, deliver them back home safe and sound. And we pray that you might continue to use them in mighty ways for the advancement of your kingdom and for the good of your people, all to the glory of your most holy name. We would pray, O oh Father, for the civil magistrate of our land. We would pray for the president, the vice president, for those in Congress, those in the Supreme Court, all the justices. And we pray as well for those who make up the leadership, the civil magistrate here in the state of Texas. We pray for the governor, the lieutenant governor, all the legislators, and all others, even within here, the city of New Braunfels, that you might lead them, that you might, with your mighty hand, suppress corruption, that you might give unto them wisdom, that they might be able to rule in a way that is equitable, and that maintains peace and good order within our society, within our state, and within our country. And now, Father, continue to be with us as we continue to worship you. We rejoice that you are the covenant God. You are our God. We are your people, redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lamb. For this we rejoice and give you eternal glory, praise, and thanks. We pray all these things then, and we do so in the precious and mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, as all God's people say together, amen. Let us continue in our worship and do so by singing together hymn number 429.
Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, find my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above. Please be seated. <clears throat> Our scripture reading comes to us from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Verses 8 through 15. <clears throat> So you're turning there, let's come to God in prayer. Father, we are weak, but your word is strong. It has power. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It does not fail or fade, but it remains forever. Lord, you are gracious, but our hearts are hard, our minds are dull. Illuminate our minds and soften our hearts, that we might hear your word, believe it, and love it, and practice it in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. God's word, give your attention to it. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of God. The work of the church is missions, period. Everything that the church is called to do is summarized in the biblical injunction found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Now, that doesn't mean that the only activity the church does is preach. But everything, everything that the church does either points to the gospel preached or it serves the ministry of the gospel preached. Everything the church does, then, is either missions, or it is a sign and seal of missions, or serves missions. The simple life of the church is given to us, summarized in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Word, sacraments, prayer. To be sure, later on in the book of Acts, mercy ministry will develop and it will be added to the church's activity. But even there, with diaconal mercy ministry, that too is to serve the mission of the church, that it might preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul has already introduced to us the gospel of God, verses 1 through 7. He has explained what it is, what the gospel is, and whom it concerns. It concerns, we are told by the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are told by Paul that this Jesus descended from David according to the human flesh. He further told us who he is, who he, the Apostle, is. He is Paul. He is called by Christ. And particularly, the Apostle Paul, we are told early on in Romans is called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, therefore, has the heart of a missionary. His ministry is put on full display as he opens his heart here to the Roman believers. And as he opens his heart to them, he shows also his love for the world. No, Paul did not love the world in that sinful sense in which the word world is used in the Bible. But Paul did love the world in so much as the Bible uses the word world to describe the collective nations of the earth. He loved Gentile sinners. He loved them so much, he did all that he could to reach them with the gospel, including suffering and eventually dying for the sake of that Gentile sinners would hear the gospel. 
We will see this today then in our text in three parts. First, missions and Paul's prayers, verses 8 through 10. Second, missions and Paul's edification of the saints, verses 11 and 12. And third, missions and Paul's evangelization of the Gentiles, verses 13 through 15. So first of all, <clears throat> missions and Paul's prayers, verses 8 through 10. Paul desires to lead off his letter, as he says here, first. In other words, what Paul here is saying is to begin with. What I would like to begin doing, he is saying here, is to thank God. This is not unusual for Paul. Paul oftentimes opens up his letters with a word of commendation, a word of encouragement to the churches. He is thankful to God for them. Think about it. Think how, 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 how encouraged you would be if somebody says and comes up to you and they say, I am thankful to God for you. No higher compliment can be given to you. And in fact, I myself am thankful for you. As we hear reports about heritage and as we think of you and we pray for you, I thank God for the saints who are gathered here at Heritage. Be encouraged. Paul is trying to encourage the Roman Christians. He's thankful to God for them. And so notice here that Paul leads with, with worship. He glorifies God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the saints in Rome. He offers his thanks to God, you'll notice here, through Jesus Christ. Now that word, that little word there, through, denotes the idea of mediatorship. It is prayer through Jesus Christ. Paul prays to God, even words of thanksgiving to God, through the mediator, Jesus Christ. You see, there is, in fact, only one mediator between God and man. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Sinners cannot come to God in prayer on the basis of that sinner's own righteousness. Why? Because we don't have any righteousness. If we were to, in our own supposed righteousness, our own sinfulness, go into the presence of God, we would only offend Him and incite His wrath against us. We need a sinless mediator who can bring our prayers to the Father. And that's Jesus. He is our great and faithful high priest. And so Paul, even the Apostle Paul, prays to the Father through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. But notice why it is that he thanks God. It is because of the believer's faith being proclaimed in all the world. That is to say, their faith, their having believed on Christ, is well known. Not well known in general, like in the general populace, but well known among the churches that are scattered all throughout the Gentile nations. But what makes the faith of the Romans particularly noteworthy? Well, by all indications, the church in Rome was the furthest church from Jerusalem known at the time. Now remember, Jerusalem is sort of the epicenter, right, where Christianity begins, and, and then it goes from Jerusalem to Samaria to the furthest corners of the earth. And, and at that time, Rome is regarded as, as the place that has the church that's the furthest away. It's remarkable. It's remarkable, perhaps, above all else because of this fact, that Paul, the apostle who is commissioned by Jesus to preach to the Gentiles, has never been to Rome at this point. He didn't plant that church. 
the capital of the empire has a church of Jesus Christ in it, and Paul hasn't been there yet. How that church got planted, we don't really know. But that it was planted is for sure. And Paul is enthusiastic about that. Notice there's no sense of jealousy in Paul or envy. Hey, I didn't plant that church. Can't be that good. Right? No, he's excited. He thanks God. And he calls God as his witness as he goes on here to say, for it is God that he serves with his spirit. Now, what does that mean with his spirit? Basically, it means with his whole heart. That the Apostle Paul serves God in preaching the gospel sincerely, wholeheartedly, without any reservation. Further, it is a service, we are told, in the gospel. You see, this is Paul's service. It is gospel service. His ministry has its special focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. But his activity is to not only preach the gospel, he also serves the gospel in many other ways. For instance, he goes on to explain here that he prays for the saints in Rome without ceasing. Not that literally he, he never stops praying for the saints in Rome, as if that's all he did day and night and didn't do any other activity. But what he is saying here when he says without ceasing, he is saying repeatedly, regularly, without forgetting them. In his prayers, he's time and time and time again recalling them to minds so that he lifts them up in his prayers. But his special prayer request for them is this, that Paul might somehow, and he notes here, by the will of God, only God's will is that which comes to pass, not man's will. He wishes, his prayer is that he might somehow get to Rome. That's, that's his prayer. You might imagine how difficult it would be for Paul to get to Rome. He's really, really far away. It would not have been a cheap Mediterranean cruise he could hop on, you see. Paul also, however, was quite busy. He was ministering the gospel that, to the churches he had planted. He was bringing relief to those experiencing famine in Jerusalem. And to get from Jerusalem all the way over to Rome would have been a very difficult trip to figure out. But Paul wants a share in that mission that is going on in Rome to the Gentiles. He is eager for ministry among them, so his prayer is that God would grant him success in getting there that he might preach the gospel among them. Second, missions and Paul's edification of the saints, verses 11 through 12. Paul's longing desire is to see the Christians in Rome in order that he might impart some spiritual gift. Do you see that there? Verse 11. The gift is spiritual because it characterizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church by the ascended Christ on the day of Pentecost. And it is the Spirit who gives gifts to his people, to the church, for the ministry of the gospel. These are gifts, then, that originate from heaven. They originate from God. They originate from the Holy Spirit. They are not carnal in nature. They are not corruptible gifts. They are incorruptible gifts. 
This gift that Paul wants to impart to them then is to strengthen, you'll see here in verse 11, strengthen the believers in Rome. Paul is not here talking about a physical strengthening, but he's talking about a spiritual strengthening, a strengthening that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the big question for us to ask, for our purposes this evening, is how will Paul strengthen them? What exactly will he do to strengthen the saints? Now we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail in the next part, but verse 15 gives us the answer. If you look at verse 15, you'll see that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to them. That's how he's going to strengthen them. He's going to strengthen them by preaching the gospel to them. Paul is not coming to strengthen them with, with, with man-made advice or man-made counsel or man-made wisdom or with entertainment or with a rah-rah. But he's coming, he's coming to them to strengthen them through the preaching of the gospel. It is the gospel that strengthens the saints. The gospel then, if that's true, and certainly that was true in Paul's day. That's the way Paul saw it. He was, we want to go to Rome, strengthen believers with the preaching of the gospel. If that is the case, then it is most certainly the case now. And that means, that means in part, it means this, that the gospel for believers never becomes old hat. It never sort of takes a, a backseat position. It never falls into the background. It never becomes passe. The Christian, in other words, never moves on from the gospel, but the Christian always lives out of the gospel. Christians never, never get to a point where they no longer need to hear the gospel preached. When Paul desires to edify the church, when Paul desires to strengthen the church, he envisions the word of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit doing it. Paul knows that the strengthening then doesn't come from him, but it comes from God, who with and by the word strengthens believers according to their inner being. It should be noted, it is the gospel as preached that strengthens believers. Now, it is true, we as Christians are strengthened in other ways as well. We are strengthened when we have fellowship with each other. We, get, we are strengthened in prayer meetings. We are, we are strengthened in Bible studies. We are strengthened in Bible reading. We are strengthened in the sacraments. But you see, all of those things flow from and serve the gospel. They are not independent things in and of themselves, but they are always connected to the center, which is the gospel, the source of this, all the strengthening. The primary means that God gives for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints, says our standards, is the preaching of the holy gospel. But the benefit Paul wants to bring to them is no one-way benefit. It's not just to benefit them. Paul is expecting here, you'll notice, mutual benefit as he imparts a spiritual gift to them in the preaching of the gospel. And he sees how they receive that gospel by faith. His own faith is strengthened. 
And this will encourage Paul. And you know the experience, right? You have fellowship with, a, with another believer. And you talk about the things of the Lord. And you walk away from that conversation with that fellow believer encouraged, built up, maybe newly informed of what it is God wants you to know from his word. But you are mutually encouraged. That's what fellowship does. When your pastor preaches to you and you receive the word from his lips by faith, he is encouraged by that. He's built up. He's strengthened by that. Even as you are strengthened from hearing the word from his lips. So it's a mutual benefit. But it's important to note that being mutually encouraged and preaching the gospel to the saints for their perfecting are not the only reasons that Paul wants to go to Rome. Those are pastoral reasons, and they're good reasons for his desire to go to Rome. But there's something more. Third, missions and Paul's evangelization of the Gentiles, verses 13 through 15. At this point, Paul moves to communicate some inside info. It's inside because he's given us a window into what's going on inside of him. He tells us about his intentions. He tells us what it is that he intends to do. He wants them to know that it is his intention, his full plan to come to them. Now you can imagine how important it must be for them to hear that. This is, after all, the Apostle Paul. Paul, he's coming to visit. Clean up the church, right? That's a big deal when Paul, is, when Paul comes. And so he explains how thus far he has been prevented to get there. He's been busy, after all. That's understandable. He's been planting churches. He's been bringing relief to victims of the famine in Jerusalem. He's a busy guy, and he's been delayed. But that doesn't mitigate for one moment his desire. His desire is clear. He wants to reap a harvest. He wants to reap a harvest. Now, that, that picture of reaping a harvest is used in the New Testament to signify this idea of, of gathering souls, of, of bringing souls to salvation. Part of the harvest, he imagines, is among the believers who, who are in the church there already. He wants to have a harvest, he says here, among you. And this, the harvest, is... As, re, as a result of the imparting of a spiritual gift he was talking about earlier, a harvest looks like the strengthening of believers' faith, which we've discussed already. But there's another harvest that Paul here brings into view. He also wants to reap a harvest among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, he could have in mind here the rest of the Gentiles, that is to say the rest of the pagans who are living in the city of Rome, those Gentiles who are not yet saved, but I suspect, actually, Paul has something bigger than that in mind. You see, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he has already been reaping a harvest of souls among non-Jews, the uncircumcised. His special ministry has been to preach the gospel among the Gentiles, particularly, verses, verse 5 of chapter 1. So the rest of the Gentiles that he is talking about here or indicating may in fact be the rest of the Gentile lands even beyond Rome. Not that Paul envisioned preaching to literally every single non-Jew or in every single Gentile land, but certainly to the rest of the Gentiles to whom God had called him to preach. 
This seems likely because at the end of Romans, Paul makes clear that he intends to make Rome, the city, the, the city of Rome, but particularly the church in Rome, as his launching pad. His launching pad from which he will go forth even as far west as Spain to preach the gospel, which is really, really far from Jerusalem. If Rome is far, Spain is even further. His goal is to preach the gospel and to reap a harvest far and wide among the Gentile nations as much as possible and as much as the Lord would allow him to do. But what he says about his obligation comes in verse 14. He wants to go to Rome to have a harvest of souls among the Gentiles because notice what he says here. He is obligated to both Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish. His obligation is laid upon him, you'll notice, by the Lord Jesus himself. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus, speaking about Paul, says this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Paul is compelled by nothing less than the call of Christ. He is Christ's servant to do his will, and his will is that he would, Paul, bring the name of Jesus before the Gentiles. Paul is obligated to all manner of unbelievers. That's what he's saying here when he says Greeks and barbarians, when he says wise and foolish. He's talking about all manner, all kinds of unbelievers and pagans. Without discrimination at all, Paul says he is obligated to them all. He has a responsibility of service to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the fools, which is a way of saying all manner of people. Now, we might guess that his words could be shocking to the ears of his fellow Jews. And there were Jewish believers in the congregation at Rome. Why would it be shocking? Well, Greeks... Barbarians, fools, the wise men of the Gentiles, which are, by the way, the philosophers. That's what's in view here, the pagan philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, etc. Okay? All those types of people do not call to mind good things in the mind of a Jew. For Jews, all of them, whether they're the refined philosophers or they're the dirty barbarians... It doesn't matter which ones. They are all unclean. They are all sinful. They're uncircumcised. They're outside the covenant. They're no good. Why would Paul be obligated to such no-gooders? But Paul does, uh, goes on and he says that it's not just an obligation in verse 15. It's not as if the Apostle Paul is sort of doing it slavishly. Oh, I'm obligated to, to preach to these terrible people. That's, that's not. He's actually eager, he says. He's eager to preach the gospel to them. He's not a mercenary. He's not a hireling. He's not doing it out of some sort of an external compulsion. But he is actually eager to preach the gospel because he is eager to obey Christ his King. He wants to please his master, and so he does it. He does it willingly. He does it joyfully as unto the Lord. I think that from all this, then, there are several takeaways. First, 
the church needs to understand her mission. Second, the church must not deviate from her mission. And finally, the church must trust the Lord in her mission. So first of all, the church needs to understand her mission. The church is called to go forth. Its job is to make disciples of all nations. Now, this doesn't mean to make disciples of all nations. Paul does not here have in view the idea of going out and having such a high lofty goal as to Christianize all nations, make them all 100% exclusively Christians. To be sure, if the preaching of the gospel resulted in the conversion of a nation's ruling authorities, wonderful, praise the Lord, that'd be great. And it would also be wonderful if the gospel, according to the sovereign will of God, was made so effectual that the masses were converted through the preaching of the gospel and so that the populace was, by and large, Christian. That would be wonderful. But that's not what is in view when we talk about the Great Commission. How many converts, after all, and who is converted is not for the church to decide. The church preaches the gospel indiscriminately. God is the one who determines how effectual it is. Furthermore, the church has not failed in carrying out her mission if and when she remains a part of the minority population. It is not like the church somehow fails if she lives as a marginalized remnant in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. In fact, quite on the contrary, that is the position envisioned within the New Testament until the coming of Christ. On the contrary, when the church is faithful, the world will hate her. Why will the world hate her when the church is faithful? The world will hate her because the world hates her God. And therefore, she is always a voice crying in the wilderness. But the church is faithful in her mission. When she faithfully preaches the gospel of God's Son and does so, indiscriminately to all without fear of what man can do. Her mission, like Paul's, is to reap a harvest among the Gentiles, and she does exactly that when she preaches to all, as she makes disciples among the Gentiles, however few that may be. So the nature of the church's mission, therefore, is not to convert states or cultures. Rather, it is to gather and to perfect the elect, however few or however many they may be. God is the one who saves his own, and he does so through the preaching ministry of the church. That is the nature of your mission as Heritage Presbyterian Church and of all the churches of Christ everywhere. Second, the church must not deviate from its mission. The church must have a laser-like focus and a Paul-like zeal for the preaching of the gospel and for the preaching of the gospel to all. The church, therefore, you'll notice, is not called to preach to the deserving or only to those who are deemed worthy or those who are of their own kind. The gospel is to be preached to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish. As we say that the world around us is in darkness, and it is. And as we say that the world around us is a wicked 
and perverse generation. And it is. In the, ser in the very same breath, however, we must confess our pity and our love for our wicked neighbors. Like Paul, we are under obligation to those wicked neighbors. They may be against us. They may be against God, and they are against God. They are at enmity with God. But we must never be against them, even though we may be, and we are, and we should be against their sin. No, like Paul, we must be for them. We must desire their salvation, not their destruction. Barbarian and fool alike, we pity them all. We pray for them. We preach to them. In God's providence, by the way, just as an aside, in God's providence, what an opportunity we have today. Paul had to travel far and wide to bring the gospel to the nations. In order to get to Rome, he would have, he would have had to first get arrested. Then he had to be convicted. And then he had to appeal his conviction to Caesar in order to get something less than a glorious cruise from the Mediterranean over to the capital of the empire, Rome. We don't have to do that today if we don't want to. If we are, wonderful. It's great to go somewhere else. But we don't have to go to the nations in order that the Gentiles might hear the gospel. Pagans are in our neighborhoods. Pagans are in our cities. They're in our state. They're in our country. They're coming to us in droves. And whatever your politics may be, put that to the side. Can you see the opportunity and appreciate it as it's facing the church? The nations come. Let us preach the gospel to them. Let us not waver, not even for a moment. Let us stay the course to preach the gospel. Finally, the church must trust the Lord in her mission. The temptation will be to think of other means to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. But Paul stayed laser-focused. He was committed to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen believers and to reap a harvest through the preaching of the gospel. We might be tempted to think, if we can just change the behavior of people, we can bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. Or we may be tempted to think, if we just educate people in the proper way of doing things, they will be turned from fools into wise men. And we may be tempted to think that we can refine barbarians and make them well-mannered Greeks simply through man-made endeavors. We may be tempted to minimize the importance of preaching and give them entertainment instead of a sermon. After all, people don't like to be preached at these days. They are bored by sermons. The days when the masses came out to listen to George Whitfield preach because there was nothing more entertaining to do on a Sunday, those days are over. We might be tempted to think we need to entertain them in order to get them in. But we need to realize that it is, in fact, sermons that build the kingdom. It is, in fact, the preaching of the gospel that converts sinners and perfects the saints. But notice how Paul here trusts the Lord. He trusts the means, the means of grace, 
that God has given him for this mission. He trusts that the gospel preached is sufficient to gather and to perfect the saints. Here is your mission. Our confidence in the gospel is grounded in our confidence in God's promises that he will bring a harvest through the preaching of the gospel to all. And our trust, then, is in the God of the gospel himself. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of your son, which is, in fact, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Father, fill our hearts with eagerness, like Paul, that we might be eager to preach the gospel and to bring it to all peoples everywhere, whether Greek or barbarian, whether wise or fools, that in all things Jesus Christ would be glorified in the harvesting of his church. It's in his name we pray. Amen.